But it's been really cool this morning, hasn't it? Just to listen to the stories of people and how they've come to know Jesus. Um, and just well, how Jesus encountered them. Um, and and I, I'm, there are there are so many good stories of people in this hall and people around the world of just different ways in which Jesus encounters us, different ways in which he comes to us. And uh, we're going to read this morning about one of the more well-known, popular stories of an encounter with Jesus, and it's the conversion of Saul. And I'm going to ask Bradley to come up to the front this morning. Um, And before we go to the book of Acts, we're going to get into, uh, uh, we're going to ask from, you're going to hear from Paul's mouth himself. Come on, Bradley, I'm like trying to drag this out while you get here. Um, We're going to hear from Paul's mouth himself what his conversion was like. Um, And so from 1 Timothy chapter 1, from verse 13 through to verse 16, I think. Thanks, Bradley. Even though I was once a blasphemer, persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of the sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who believe in him and receive eternal life. Awesome. Thank you, Bradley. So it, it feels like in just about every conversion story, there are oftentimes three parts to it. There's the, what I once was, I was a horse, <laughs> I believe in fairies, um, and then, then there's the moment of encounter with Jesus, and then there's the change of what happens after, of how life is different. And you kind of see that in, in these, these words from, from Timothy this morning, where he, well, the words of Paul to Timothy, where he starts off with, I was a blasphemer. Which is kind of an odd thing for Paul to say because he was actually a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was training to be the greatest Pharisee of all. Um, And you wouldn't expect a Pharisee to be a blasphemer. And of course, he's not saying I ended my texts with OMG. Because blasphemy is so much more than just what comes out of your mouth. What Paul is really saying is I had usurped the position of God. I'd replaced God, I think in Paul's case, replaced God with my religion with my religious, my self-righteousness. And so here, here he is, he's become this religious fanatic. And it, it, so, so God's been removed from the picture. Actually, even though he's portraying this image of God is number one and I'm using my religion to glorify, he's not, he's worshipping his religion. And his religion has turned him into this violent man who ends up giving his approval to the execution of of Stephen, his illegal execution, and we'll read a little bit more this morning about his ongoing persecution against God's people. But then he encounters Jesus, many of you know the story, we'll read bits of it later, he encounters Jesus and grace, love, and faith are given to him, he says. I received grace, love, and faith. And it's kind of interesting to read that, because often we think of you receive grace, love, and mercy from God. Those are the words that I would have chosen. But Paul says that I I received faith as well. And kind of what he's saying is, even the ability to believe was in itself a gift from God. Paul did not 
summon up within him somehow an ability to believe. And he's very quick in this passage to say, I didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve God's intervention. I was a sinner. In fact, he says, I was the worst of sinners. And so there's this moment of conversion where this very worst of sinners is encountered by Jesus. He receives grace, love, and faith. And there becomes this, this change. And there's this hint of what is to come. And he says, Jesus saved me for his glory. Jesus saved me so that he could put me on display and say, see how patient I am. If I could save Saul, I can save anyone. So I don't know if you were at our church camp. Do you remember Friday evening? I think it was David Platt who said these words. He said that how convinced are you? This is the question he asked. How convinced are you that you are saved solely by his grace and supremely for his glory among the nations? And that's really what Paul is saying here. I was saved solely by his grace and supremely for his glory among the nations. So now we're going to go to Acts chapter 9. And before we read from there, um, just our, my picture on the screen. Is my picture there somewhere, Laura? I don't know if it is. I forgot if I put it up or not. The little slideshow thing. Um, so you, you, you'll have seen this picture often enough now, probably tired of seeing it, but I want to imprint it and burn it on your brain, right? That we are at, its, at, it, at the center. We're a gospel-centered church. We want to be gospel-centered people. Everything that we do is driven and motivated by the gospel. And there are four things we're called to love. We're called to love God in worship. We're called to love one another um, as Jesus has loved me. We're called to love, our, and so there's that sense of community. We're called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so there's that, that reaching out to the community and being the Samaritan. And then there's this call to go into all the world and take the gospel because God so loved the world. And the whole point about all of this is that what is it that motivates us to do those four things? And if it's not the gospel, it falls apart. I'm just repeating stuff that I've already said, but just to re-emphasize, if you see a beggar on the side of the streets and you want to do something for him, you can be, there could be all sorts of motivations for that. Perhaps you're motivated by a sense of guilt. Shame this poor guy. I have so much, he has so little. And so you, you bring stuff to him, and then you see more and more need, and the more need that there is, the more you're giving, and it becomes overwhelming. And there is so much to do, and you just don't have the capacity to do it all, and you become overburdened by that guilt. And eventually it will crush you. The guilt will crush you because you cannot do it all. Or perhaps you, you, you recognize the guilt, and so instead of just working out of guilt, you now start handing out things, but you, you do so with your cell phone in hand, and you take selfies for Instagram, so that the whole world can see what a good person you are. And now you become motivated not by your guilt, but by your pride. And we know what God thinks about those who are driven by pride. And that too will collapse and fall apart. And you know what? Motivated by guilt and by pride can very quickly and very easily lead to great things. You can set up NGOs and NPOs and goodness knows what else and mass movements and, and, and charity drives and, and you'll get things going. It'll happen. But it's driven out of the wrong thing and eventually it will destroy you. Or you could say the same with worship. There are lots of reasons that people seek to worship God. But if you remove the gospel from it, you can be at a super fancy church where there's just one guitarist and he's fantastic. 
And he just, you know, or, one, or a better church than that where there's like a huge, I don't know, whatever it is. And, and you, you're just loving the worship and the preaching is just, ah. Oh. But if that, that worship, if the, the singing and the preaching is self-centered, if it's about me, if it's about me feeling good, it'll destroy you. Because every week you've got, to, you've got to conjure up something. You've got to conjure up the feeling. You've got to get to that place again. And it'll destroy you. It's not sustainable. And so gospel must be at the center of all we do. And the gospel, at its very simplest, can be defined as Christ came into this world to save sinners. At its very essence, at its very fundamental core, Christ came into the world to save sinners. At its very narrowest understanding of the gospel. But the gospel is a lot broader than that as well. And you can almost begin to understand the gospel as something that kind of captures the full storyline of the Bible. And there are different ways of doing that. I think one way is to, to see the, the storyline of the Bible is about creation. God creates a good world. And then fall, where human beings decide that actually we're not interested in God's good commands and in running our lives as he calls it. We'll do it our own way. We'll be the horse that jumps the fence. And then the story of redemption, where Jesus comes to save sinners. And then there's the story of restoration, where God's intention is to restore all things. To not just burn this place up and get us out of here as soon as we can, but to restore things, to take us, in a sense, back to Eden. And so that, too, in a very broad sense, would be an understanding of the gospel. And it's the gospel that we want to focus in on this morning, that thing that rests at the center, that drives what we do and who we are. It's the gospel at the center that drove Paul and drove him to go into all the world, to go to places where the gospel had never been preached, to plant churches, to establish disciples, to see lives changed, motivated not by his guilt, not by his pride, not by his arrogance, not by a sense of, I need to feel like I've accomplished something in life, but driven by the gospel, that Christ has come and saved me. So, Acts chapter 9 this morning. I'm just going to read bits and pieces as we go today. Um, this is a long passage, a long chapter. I'm even going to skip some bits out and read it all at home later. But Acts chapter 9, first two verses. Meanwhile, so we've just had Philip in the Ethiopian, and Philip's gone around into Samaria, and he's off to helping people in, in, in sorting out the guy in Ethiopia, and then gone to Caesarea. But meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So there's, there's Saul before the big change. There's Saul before he encounters Jesus. He's out there breathing out murderous threats, extending his reign of terror from Jerusalem to now the surrounding towns and villages as far away as Damascus in Syria, 200 and, I don't know, 250 kilometers away, 220 kilometers away. And what he does is he goes and gains authority, not just from his own little synagogue, but he goes right to the top. He goes to the, the high priest, the man in charge of the Sanhedrin, the, the elders and leaders, the political and religious power in Jerusalem. And he goes there and he gets letters of authority from them to go and wage war against the followers of Jesus. And he gets these letters and off he goes. He's, he's on his way to, to take out those who belong to the way. 
And I love that as, a, as an expression or a description of the disciples of Jesus, the way, those who are on the way, the followers of the way. This is before the slur Christian has been thought up. They're being called the church, but the followers of the way is just a nice way to put it. And so here's Saul, the anti-Christian, Saul on a, another way altogether. This is Saul, the murderer, who had murdered Stephen. And he may not have picked up a rock, but there's no question that Saul was the main instigator behind that execution. Saul is the one who's standing there giving his approval. Saul is the one who's given authority to do this. It's, there's no justice in this action. This is purely a kangaroo court. This is, this is just mob justice, and it's not even justice. This is just a mob gone mad. This is Saul, the murderer. And I've got to think. So just to be clear, these next, this next minute and a half is purely your pastor speculating. This is pure speculation. Nothing in the Bible. This is just me wondering. See, Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's, he's an upcoming legal mind, an upcoming lawyer. He is called a young man which means under the age of 40. And some of you are going, thank goodness. And other of us are going, man. <laughs> who is Jesus' greatest opponents in his ministries? Who, who, who is it that kept coming at Jesus in his ministry? The Pharisees, time and time again. How long has it been since Jesus died at this point? About a year, give or take. About a year. So I, I start to wonder to myself, I wonder how many times when we read in the Gospels about a young Pharisee stepped up to challenge Jesus and asked him whatever. Or a young lawyer trying to trap Jesus said. Or a group of Pharisees trying to catch Jesus out by saying. And I, I, just, I just wonder, right? It's, like I say, pure speculation. I wonder if Saul was in that group, in that crowd. Perhaps one of those young lawyers who started to question Jesus. After all, debate and argument is what he did with Stephen, right? It was his favorite thing to do. And we're going to see that even the converted Saul still loves to debate. We'll see that just now. And what did he do when he lost debates with Stephen? Had him killed. And so I start to wonder, what, what, what sort of role did Paul, Saul possibly play in the death of Jesus? And as I say, pure speculation. Do not tell anyone else that your pastor thought this. I'm just, I just wonder. Makes me think. Saul, the murderer. Who did he murder? The point is that before he meets Jesus, Saul is not a great guy. Well, some people think he's a great guy. His friends, his associates, the people in the synagogue, I'm sure they all think he's a great guy. I mean, he's earned approval and accolades from his peers, from the local synagogue. Clearly, the high priest thinks highly of him. And so many are looking at Saul and going, you are the next theologian who will take Judaism, who will take Pharisaism to the next level. You're the one who's going to lead Israel into, into new understandings and expressions of the law of God. You're the one who's going to take us somewhere else altogether, to take us into something deeper. And then these pesky members of the way keep getting in the way. 
And so Saul, the mighty conqueror, rides out at the head of a little posse out to Damascus to, to war, really. And we've heard right this morning that you and I, we have a pre-story too. All of us do. Perhaps some of you are Saul the murderer. If you've murdered someone, please don't raise your hand. Um, <laughs> might make us feel a little uncomfortable around you. I don't know. Um, for some, some, of you, some of you were violent. Some of you, that's where you went to. For some of you, it was drugs and booze. I don't know. I think for a lot of us, we were just nice. We thought we were anyway. That's what I was. I was just a nice kid. There was nothing wild. I became a Christian at 14. I didn't really have much time to explore the full depths of my depravity and sinful nature at the age of 13 and a half. Um, so I, I just was doing my best to be a good kid and live a good life and be well behaved, do everything in moderation. And I think a lot of you, you grow up, even if you become a Christian later on in life, you, you know, we're just, we're just trying to be good, trying to be nice, trying to be kind, trying to be helpful here and there. And yet, to be honest, no different from Saul, was we're all blasphemers. Even if you don't end your text messages with OMG. Because it's not about what you say, but it's about usurping the place of God. And saying, I don't need to hear God. I don't need to hear his voice. And so we become a bit like Adam and Eve. We can rule our own lives. We can be masters of our own destiny. And we ride out like Saul on our self-righteous self quest for the good life. And unless Jesus meets us on the road, we're riding out to our own destruction. Let's read what happens next in verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard a sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Saul, on his way to Damascus, encounters Jesus. Saul is brought up short, brought face to face with the one that he's really persecuting. He thought he was persecuting the church. He thought that he was persecuting the followers of the way. And Jesus says, actually, you're persecuting me. Because what you do to the church, you're doing to me. Which should make some of us rethink how we speak about the Lord's church. And the mighty Saul is humbled in an instant. So, Pop quiz. Was Saul looking for Jesus? Yes or no? No. 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 Was Jesus perhaps looking for Saul? And when Saul comes face to face with Jesus, how does Jesus deal with him? He <laughs> just slap across the back of the head. Is there, oh, Saul, won't you come to me? Please let me into your heart. If you don't want me to, I'll stay away. Let's ask all your friends here to, to play another round of Just As I Am with all the doors closed and all the windows shut and right. It, it's, like, it's almost like Jesus assaults Saul. <laughs> that might be a bit harsh in what actually happens here. 
I, I, I get the impression that this is not Jesus knocking at the door of Saul's heart and Saul's got the handle on the inside and only Saul can... This is Jesus kicking the door down. And then Jesus is dishing out the orders. Go to Damascus. Don't do anything. Wait. Somebody will tell you what to do. It's very different from what we often hear when we talk about conversion and salvation. Very different from what a lot of of churches try and produce. Now, I I have to say, I do think that Saul's experience is somewhat unique. All right? I fell off a horse once. Had nothing to do with blinding lights and voices in the sky. (laughs) Everything about my own ability. Um, And and I think, and and it was interesting to hear this morning, I think each each one of you guys said the same sort of thing, that, that actually it was about Jesus coming to find you. And yes, there may have been some sense, some prompting, some desire, something. But Jesus came looking for you. And I think sometimes we do think, ah, oh, I went looking for Jesus. But if you reflect about it a little bit, he came, because, because you know what? Jesus wasn't lost. He didn't need to be found. But you and I were. Listen to this story of salvation. This is great. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes his conversion. C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote the Narnia stories, right? The Narnia movies. If, you've, if you haven't read them, you've watched the movie. So he says this. You must picture me alone in, in that room in Magdalen. That's the college that he was in at Cambridge, I think. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. Don't you think that's cool? He's sitting in his study and every time he's, and, and he's working like crazy and every time he makes a bro- takes a break, he's like, huh? he's here, oh no. <laughs> St. Augustine calls the Spirit of God the hound of heaven. C.S. Lewis goes on to say this, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. And in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. (laughs) And this is just a great sentence. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. (laughs) Did he want to become a Christian? (laughs) Doesn't sound like it. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility, which will accept a convert, even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love, which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, darting his eyes in every direction, looking for a chance of escape? The words compel entrere, compel them to come in have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them, but properly understood, they plumb the the, the depths of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. Elsewhere, C.S. Lewis says that God was like the grand chess master who moved me into a corner again and again and again until there was nowhere to go, and I had to finally say, I surrender. 
So again, remember 1 Timothy, where, where Paul describes that moment of being knocked off the horse, that moment of being slapped on the back of the head as this moment of grace and love. The kindness and mercy of God kicked his door down. And in that moment, Saul loses his sight. And, and the guys who, this guy who just days earlier had led out this all-conquering troop from Jerusalem is led by the hand into Damascus. He who was on his way to make captives of those who are on the way has himself become a captive to their captain. And then there's a section, we won't read it, but this guy Ananias enters the picture and Jesus says to Ananias, go to this guy Saul and go and pray for him. And Ananias is like, no way, so that'll be like putting my head into the lion's mouth. I'm going to die. And Jesus says, no, no, you need to go and pray for him um, because I have great plans for him. And Ananias gets to hear God's intention for Saul. He is my chosen instrument that the gospel may go out to Gentiles and to Israel. And then Jesus says this, I still need to show him how much he's going to suffer. I wonder how helpful that would be when people want to come to Jesus to just like, well, let me, let me tell you a little bit about suffering first. And so Ananias visits this man, Saul, who has spent the last year executing, killing, murdering, locking up. And Saul, this, the, Ananias walks in and says, my brother Saul. And scales fall from Saul's eyes and there is this physical expression of what's gone on inside that Saul has been living a life of blindness, blind to the truth, and now his eyes have been opened and it's not just that he can see trees and people again, but that his eyes, his spiritual eyes have been opened and he sees now the glory of Christ. And Saul is baptized as a sign of his conversion, not walking to the, to the front of the church and, and whatever, but baptized. In this act saying the old guy is buried, I'm now new in Jesus, I'm following Jesus, I identify with him in his death. And then what happens? There's this total transformation. Look from halfway through verse 19. Spore, Spore. <clears throat> Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem, going among those who call in his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. And Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Saul completely transforms. He at once begins preaching in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, now the synagogues have been expecting him. Saul is the celebrity preacher of the day. They're, ex they're, they're so excited that Saul, the greatest theologian, is arriving in our town and he's going to preach here next Sunday, or next Sunday. Isn't that great? And so when he arrives, they're like, please preach. We can't wait to hear what you've got to say. And they're expecting him to say something like, be gooder, try harder, be better, put more effort in. 
They're expecting him to, to, to tell them exactly how far you're allowed to walk on the Sabbath, that you need to measure the length of your stride so that, you know, don't walk a step too far because that's bad. Little step. That, that's kind of the service that they're expecting from him. They're wanting to know, what do we do about bacon sandwiches? Because that smell. Oh. They want to know how long their hair needs to be in order to get God to really like them. Because that's what Pharisaism was about. It was about what laws you can and should and better and how to obey those laws and how to get around those laws. It's like dodging sauce, you know. What can you actually get away with? And Saul steps up to the microphone and says, let me tell you about Jesus. It's not what they were expecting. And they're baffled by him. They're baffled by the fact that he's proving to them that Jesus really is the Christ. The one that God had promised back in Genesis chapter 3. The one who will crush the head of the serpent. And the tables are completely turned, right? And this goes from Saul trying to kill members of the way to the Jews trying to kill Saul. And it's so bad that he's got to get into a fish basket and he's lowered out of the city walls. And it's just evidence that Saul really is a basket case. <laughs> now, Luke skips over three years here in the gap of one verse. He just skips over three years because at this point we're told, Paul tells us later on in Galatians, he tells us what's going on, that he goes into the desert for three years. And then after three years... Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem. So he just suddenly reappears in Jerusalem, arrives there, and the apostles take some convincing that this guy really has changed because the last time he was in Jerusalem, he was locking people up. He was off to slaughter Christians. But he's welcomed. And as soon as he's welcomed, he's, he begins boldly proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. And guess what? He ends up debating with some of the Greek Jews. Who were the Greek Jews? They're Paul's old friends. Paul himself was a Jew from Tarsus. He'd grown up outside of Israel, just like these other Greek Jews. They were the ones who were in debate with Stephen, remember? And now the very ones that used to debate Stephen are now debating Saul. And they're losing to Saul, just like Saul kept losing his debates with Stephen. And the result? They want to kill Saul in Jerusalem too. They want to kill him in Damascus. He gets away. Now they want to kill him in Jerusalem. After all, it worked with Stephen, didn't it? And so Saul has to flee. And the, the apostles said, look, it would be better if you go somewhere else. Go to Caesarea, which is interesting because that's where Philip had ended up. And you wonder how much time Saul and Philip spend together and how much time Philip gets to you know, help Saul along. But the, and, and that's all we hear about Saul for a couple of years. We don't hear about him again until chapter 13. But the setup is there for us. Where in 1 Timothy, uh, he said that he's been saved so that Jesus might be put on display. That his patience is displayed to the whole world. That the Gentiles may see that God saves. That people like you and me can be saved. Because if God can save someone like Saul, he should have goodness can save someone like you. There is no one too bad. There is no one too far away. There is no one too separated from God that God cannot save. 
The Smashing Pumpkins get it wrong. I still believe that what is lost can never be saved. No. What is lost can be saved, will be saved. Some of you are thinking about your children this morning. Thinking about them. Your grown-up children who are trying to find their own way. Some of you are thinking about parents who still resist the gospel. Or you're thinking about cousins. Or perhaps you're thinking about friends who just don't know Jesus. And we're wondering, how on earth will these people ever change? And here is the good news this morning. If he can save Saul, he can save anyone. And it should urge us, I love Ivan's story and of his, of his mother's faithfulness, it should urge us to pray all the more that he would pour out love and grace and mercy and faith on the hard hearts of those that we love, that he would in fact kick the door down. But maybe you don't even need to think about children, parents, cousins, friends. Maybe it's you yourself. Been to church for years. Just like Saul, good, religious, nice person. Ah, you're not as bad as Saul. You're not out killing people. You're not murdering anyone. You're the nice Saul. You're the the good person, the law-abiding, doing nice things because the Bible says I should, living by the law. And Jesus is knocking on the door. I'm praying that he kicks the door down because today is the day of surrender. The moment that you and I get to say, Lord, I give up. I'm yours. Please come in. Take my heart. Very quickly, listen to the last verse. Verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria entered and enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. I love how once Saul is removed from the picture, there is peace. Right? It's like Saul, the enemy of faith, stirs up chaos. Saul, the Christian, stirs up even more chaos. So what do we need to do? We need to take Saul away. And then just hear this, right? This church is strengthened. It's encouraged by the Spirit. It grew as its members lived in the fear of God. And by the grace of God, may we find the same. May we find that we be strengthened. Many of us feel weak. Sometimes the church looks weak weak. Sometimes the church looks ineffective. Sometimes the church in the world looks weak and weary. Lots of us are weary. We're tired. But God offers strength and weakness. I want you to go to our website. Go dig up my sermons from a year ago in 2 Corinthians and find the one called Basket Case. Because it's the sermon where Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about his escape from Damascus. And it's a sermon about all about how God meets us in our weakness. They're encouraged by the Spirit of God. May our spirits be lifted by the Spirit of God himself as he comes alongside us. May our church be encouraged. May you be encouraged by him today as you are reminded of his grace, love, and mercy towards you. And may we live under the fear of God. May we live under his gaze. May we live our lives for his fame and not our own. May we live under his approving gaze and not seek the approving gaze of the world around us. Friends, here is the gospel that lies at the center. Jesus 
came into this world to save sinners. He saved this guy, Saul, a religious nutter. He saved C.S. Lewis, a crusty, reluctant, agnostic academic. He saved Ivan, the atheistic Muslim. He saved Kerry, the Canadian. <laughs> he saved Mark, the little horse. He saved me, the goody two-shoes. And he can and will save you. And with this gospel at the center, we will worship him, love one another, and reach out to our world to the glory of his name. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for your unrelenting pursuit of us. Of the many times that we have rejected you, the many times that we've gone our own way, and yet you pursue. Lord, we're thinking this morning of friends and family and loved ones and people we know who continue to resist and reject you. Lord, this morning we're praying, do a sore on them. Lord, won't you, won't you kick the door down? Won't they come face to face with their desperate need for you? And Lord, for anyone here this morning who has yet to truly encounter you, who's perhaps just a little religious, a little nice, Lord, won't you, won't you encounter today and transform a life and bring salvation to a sinner? If you're that person this morning, I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up or walk to the front to do anything like that. But maybe just repeat this, this prayer. If, you, if, you're, if you're like, I need, I need Jesus. Just very quietly, don't, don't say it out loud. Everyone stare at you. That'll be odd. Just in your own head. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've gone my own way done my own thing, thought I could live life without you. Please forgive me for being that blasphemer. And Jesus, please come into my heart. Lord Jesus, please take me into your heart. I surrender. Friends, let's just have a cup of tea or coffee. If you did happen to pray that prayer, why don't you get in touch with me today, tomorrow, sometime this week, and let's chat. All right. Enjoy the coffee. See you later. You know...